Hello, I'm Caleb Howard, and this is Tales from Sacred Texts. The world is built on stories. From the beginning of time, humans have immersed themselves in legends and myth. When God himself wanted to explain to us what he was like, he didn't push elaborate treatises, but instead told stories about humanity. In this podcast, I tackle the concept of religion through stories and legends. Told through a 21st century lens, I explain to religious and non-religious people alike the stories that lie at the very heart of the belief that maybe there is a God, and maybe he really is good. Today, we'll be finishing up the story of David, and we'll watch him ascend to the place he was always meant to be, though he faces numerous obstacles along the way. I've already introduced the story of David in the past two episodes, so right now, we'll just get into the story. The lyre dropped from David's hands in shock. It wasn't like this was a total surprise, but it was still the most painful moment of his life. Jonathan was dead. David had naively believed that maybe this whole Saul nonsense would blow over and that him and Jonathan would be together again. Alas, it was not to be. The battle that had killed Saul had taken Jonathan from him as well. And this smirking foreigner in front of him was holding Saul's crown. The foreigner bragged. He had done it himself. David's patience was completely worn through. Kill him, he ordered to his men. The foreigner held up his hands. Wasn't this extreme? He'd taken out David's biggest enemy single-handedly. Didn't he deserve a reward? Wouldn't David be looked down upon if he slaughtered the people who did the things that benefited him? David's trusted soldiers cut the man down before David had a chance to reply. Guess not, David quipped in true movie fashion. He picked up his lyre and began to sing again, this time a sad, mournful song. A lament for Saul and Jonathan. How the mighty have fallen. David sang, a saying that persists to this day, though often used sardonically. We left David last episode as he was going to war to get his family back, but there's surprisingly little to report. Killing the Amalekites was really a walk in the park. They were drunk, completely unsuspecting, and were really not that brave, David had thought. Once David and his men had killed some of them, the rest of them got on camels and fled. David didn't chase them. Him and his men were too worried about getting their wives and children back to indulge in a vendetta. David did take a lot of the stuff from their camp and send it to his tribe. Yes, he was still alive, he was still on their side, and yeah, take this stuff. Also, he subtly hinted that yes, he'd like to come back. Could he without risk of death? Could this stuff maybe be... Payment. He was still waiting on the response when the man had come to him, expecting a reward. Maybe it was the tenseness from waiting on the response or the shock at Jonathan's death, but he didn't regret killing that man. He needed to make an example out of him. He didn't hand out rewards for killing people. His kingdom wouldn't be based on death and destruction like Saul's was. His would be a kingdom that welcomed everyone. 
It had been a few weeks, and David still hadn't heard back from his tribe. So he consulted his priest and asked God what he should do. Should he head back to Judah and face his tribesmen, hoping they were happy to see him? Or should he stay here and wait for a response? God was clear. Going back to his own country was a good idea. He had been in the land of his enemies far too long. David should return to his country, to the town of Hebron. David arrived, questioning what his welcome would be. To his surprise, it was overwhelmingly positive. His own tribe declared him king in the south. They didn't care what the other tribes did. To them, he was their king. His first order of business was to reach out to the town of Jabesh Gilead. Fiercely independent, this town had been a pain to rule. They had only submitted to Saul because he had saved them from being mutilated by a barbaric enemy. But David was king of the outcasts, not the put together. He congratulated them for burying Saul. That was totally badass and the right thing to do. David wasn't trying to oppose Saul or anything. They could both agree that all of Saul's heirs who would have been decent at ruling were dead. The tribe of Judah had made David king, and of all the people that he would like to have on his side, he'd really like the brave and independent people of Jabesh Gilead. We're not exactly sure what they said in return, but I'd like to think they took David's side after that. But the good times were not to last. Abner, Saul's commander, loved his position of importance in Saul's regime and knew that the man that he had hunted for years would not consider him for an important position. So Abner picked a man named Ishbosheth to be king. Ishbosheth was Saul's son and as such was able to gather a lot of support among the former supporters of King Saul. After King Saul's madness, the tribes that still clung to the Saul lineage would really take anybody with the Saul household moniker. Abner had a lot of pull with the population. He was well-known, well-liked, and cunning, and he was able to convince a good number of people that Ishbosheth would make the best king. Little did they know that Abner was working out a plan that advantaged himself at the cost of everybody else. Ishbosheth wasn't an especially competent guy. He hadn't been considered worthy to fight and thus had survived the Philistine invasion. His name literally meant shameful. He was a weak man, a puppet, but that's how Abner wanted it. Abner wanted to take charge and lead, and as such, Ishbosheth was Abner's man. Abner marched his armies to Judah to end the rule of David once and for all, but David's men, led by the bloodthirsty Joab, met them just outside the territory of Judah. Joab shrugged his shoulders at Abner. This wasn't personal. Did they really need to go at it and slaughter each other like animals? Abner shook his head. How about they each pick 12 men and let them, and quote, play in front of them? Like, watch us kill each other for sport? That's sick, one of the men who Joab was about to select said. Joab pushed him forward. This was an amazing idea. Credit to Abner for that one. So the 24 soldiers went at it, but they were evenly matched. The opposing men grabbed each other and stabbed a dagger into their opponent's side. They all died to a man. There were no survivors. 
Joab and Abner looked at each other. They were a bit embarrassed. He didn't think there was going to be a 100% death rate with this whole exercise. Maybe a couple would die, but he didn't expect to lose all 24. They guessed they'd make up for it. We'll call this the Field of Heroes, one of them proclaimed. Really makes up for watching us fight his entertainment, one of the soldiers spoke up, but was quickly silenced by his commanding officer. Anyway, since there had been no winner, and Abner wasn't about to turn around and head back up north where he belonged, all bets were off. Joab loved to kill people, and this was his chance. Forget the whole thing about him and Abner not wanting to fight. This was going to be great. He roared with anticipation and charged into battle with his sword. The men followed him, encouraged, and Abner's men were just completely outmatched. Yeah, his champions had been good, but the rest of his army was no match for the stubborn army of the men of Judah. Abner and his men were treated in defeat. Now Asahel, Joab's brother, was in the company, and he was incredibly fast. He was a brave and capable soldier, an elite soldier. But the bloodshed and warring lifestyle made him sick, and he was chasing Abner down, desperately trying to put an end to this thing once and for all. Abner was running away, desperately. He attempted to reason with Asahel. He recognized the man. He knew Asahel and Joab, the whole family. He didn't want to die, and he'd kill Asahel if he had to, but let it be clear that he did not want to. He respected the family. Their families had known each other for a long time. They were families of elites. And yeah, they had accidentally found themselves on different sides, but that was okay. Command the troops. Move the pieces on the chessboard. Show some professional courtesy to each other. Why didn't Asahel go steal some weapons off one of the dead bodies? Steal some gold? Really do anything else? Would Asahel just please get off his back? But if the young man didn't, Abner warned again, there would be consequences. Asahel would die. This just sickened Asahel more. He continued to chase Abner. He was going to kill him. Abner warned Asahel again. Seriously, he didn't want to do this. Please, please stop. Do anything else. But Asahel continued to chase Abner, and the general had no choice. In one swift motion, he turned around and impaled Asahel with his spear. The young idealist fell down and died on the spot. Joab and his remaining brother saw the body of Asahel as they continued, and they were furious. They continued pursuing the enemy. But when Abner rallied some troops in an easily defensible position, Joab knew he couldn't win. He called off his troops. He'd get his revenge later. The men returned and buried the dead, 19 in total. But they counted hundreds of enemy bodies. They had won the victory, but to Abner, the cost of his brother was not worth it. He seethed in anger. He would have his revenge. Abner and his men had fled to one of the remotest parts of the country in defeat, but whenever the enemy general showed his face again, Joab vowed that Abner 
would be a dead man. And we'll find out what happens next, right after this. Years passed. The war continued. Big victories eluded David's armies, but the situation wasn't exactly a stalemate either. David was gradually winning the war. In the midst of everything, David was starting a family. He had six sons, all with different wives, which, ew. Meanwhile, Abner was having a quarrel with Ishbosheth. See, Abner had had sex with one of King Saul's slave wives, which, first, gross. Second, those were his slave wives now. And third, when someone had sex with the king's slave wives, in that culture, they were basically expressing their desire to become king. Ishbosheth was really angry with Abner for disrespecting him and being a scummy person in general, though he probably should also have been angry at himself for still keeping his dad's slave wives around. Like, that was just kind of a gross concept. Regardless, Ishbosheth gathered his courage and confronted Abner. And what did Abner do? He got up in Ishbosheth's face. Did Ishbosheth think he was a female dog? That he would roll over and take these accusations? I mean, yeah, he'd done it. But shouldn't Ishbosheth show him a little respect? Abner hadn't handed the young king over to David, and that was much nicer than Ishbosheth deserved. Ishbosheth had better fall at his feet and grovel, or Abner would actually do it, betray him to David, and set David up as king. Ishbosheth didn't say another word. He was terrified. Meanwhile, Abner was following through with his threat. He secretly sent messengers to David. He was tired of the fighting. Could they possibly make a deal? If they could reach some sort of arrangement, maybe he would help hand the kingdom over to David instead of fighting for Ishbosheth, who was really kind of a neckbeard loser who no one wanted as king anyway. David shook Abner's hand. They had a deal. Well, as long as Abner brought David his wife back, Michal, he bought her fair and square with some enemy foreskins. Abner nodded. That would be no problem, of course. But did David know how bad that sounded? Plus, she'd taken up with another man. Paul Tiel? What did that matter, David asked. He was king. She was his original wife that he'd bought with enemy body parts. Yeah, he was taking her back. Abner, who was a very end-justifies-the-means type of guy, and sometimes not even that, just did whatever he wanted, had absolutely no problem with this. Abner relished the fact that he was able to convince Ishbosheth himself to give the order to separate Michal from her new husband, not knowing that this action would be the one that sealed his top general's deal with David to betray him. Abner relished in the fact that Ishbosheth was paving the way for his own doom. Abner was not a good man. Meanwhile, Michal was forcibly taken from Paltiel and her normal, relatively happy home and marched down to David's capital, Hebron, to be just another member of David's harem. She looked down at the ground, but what hurt the most was to hear her new husband following them, sobbing for miles and miles. Paltiel followed until Abner bellowed some expletives at the man and presumably threatened him. Then he turned around and trudged back home. 
Now for some trivia, listen to this rubbish. The Talmud alleges that Paltiel didn't love Michal. He never did. He didn't even consummate the marriage. Why was he crying? The Talmud explains this too. He was crying because he didn't have the opportunity to not have sex anymore. He lost the, and quote, good deed of self-restraint. Which, if this was true, I guess Paltiel should be informed that you don't have to have sex when you're single either. And that perhaps it's not some good deed when you're depriving your wife of any physical intimacy in order to get some vague Christian XP. Regardless, Abner handed over the wife and promised to hand over the kingdom, and David made the equal and reciprocal promise not to kill him. David did make a feast for Abner, though, and Abner immediately started influencing people to join the side of David. David smiled. Abner's loyalty was cheaper than he thought. Meanwhile, Joab and around a hundred or so special forces marched into the city around the time Abner left. They didn't quite catch him on the way out, but everyone approached Joab with the news. He was furious. He'd never forgiven Abner for killing his brother. So Joab marched to the throne room, threw the doors open, and cursed. What was David thinking? Abner seemed nice, sure, but he was a terrible guy. Had David heard the stories? Abner was clearly here as a spy. David should kill him. Joab didn't half believe this story. He knew Abner well enough to know that the man was self-serving and he was here to sell Ishbosheth out to save his own life. Abner was not spying. He was betraying the other king. But it didn't really matter. Joab had already vowed revenge on Abner. He smiled because he knew his enemy was nearly within his grasp. Four hours later, near dusk, Abner strode back into the city, summoned again by David. He was a little confused what David wanted so soon, but he figured that it might be something to do with the whole Michal thing. David had really wanted that woman back. He barely worried at all when Joab took him aside into the room near the gate to speak with him. He assumed it would be something about Joab's brother, but he thought they'd talk it out like adults and it would all be fine. It would, Joab nodded. They'd all been in a war. He pulled Abner close. Their families had long been allies, and they would be again. He'd heard the news that he'd joined David, and he was happy. Abner didn't even notice the knife in Joab's hand until it was too late. Joab stabbed Abner to death before the man was able to cry for help. He then strode off, leaving the dying body of his enemy next to the small gate. In David's small capital, news traveled fast. It was the next morning when David called Joab into the throne room and publicly berated him, cursing Joab's entire family to have leprosy, be disabled, die a violent death, be perpetually hungry, or to have an infected sore. Wow. Those are very different and widely varied curses. Joab chuckled. The whole thing was just amusing to him. King David couldn't kill him. They were family, David was soft, and David needed Joab's help to win the war. As rough as Joab was, David needed him. And he didn't believe in all this cursing garbage. 
None of it worked anyway. Joab knew he would be fine. His family would be fine. He laughed at the impotent and futile anger of David and waltzed out of the throne room. When David did emerge from the throne room, he did so in garments of mourning. David himself walked behind the coffin and attended the burial. At the graveside, David sung a sad song about how Abner did not deserve to die, especially such a violent death. The people approved. They now realized that King David was a fair man, even to his enemies. Many had not even heard yet that Abner had switched sides, and to them the king's actions impressed them all the more. Maybe they could have a king who really loved the country and its people. David did some more loud complaining about Joab and the brothers of his who were still alive. He loudly cursed Joab again, asking God to repay the general for his perfidy. It was enough. The people were pacified. They understood that David was not just stabbing his enemies and murdering them in cold blood when they had come to his capital, trusting in his mercy. They approved of his actions, and the people, most of the people, now wanted him as king. Meanwhile, Ishbosheth heard of these new developments. Increased support for David? Abner's death? Abner's death? Ishbosheth could not be comforted. He had lost. Abner's brilliance as a general was the only thing keeping him from utter ruin, and now he lost even that. He was physically exhausted. Have you ever just heard news that's so depressing that you go to bed and sleep? Well, that's what Ishbosheth did. But two of his own alleged friends, Rechab and Benah, snuck into his house during his nap. Somehow they made it past security both into the house and out of it with the head of Ishbosheth. Wait. Yes, they absolutely killed him and decapitated him right there in his bed. They traveled throughout the night until they got to Hebron. They presented Ishbosheth's head to David, bragging about their success. David snarled at them. The two jumped back. This was not what they were expecting. Did they know anything about him at all? David had killed a guy for allegedly killing Saul, his enemy, on the field of battle. What did they think he'd do when two guys had conspired to slaughter their alleged friend on his own bed when they were at peace with him? Did he want such knaves in his kingdom? There was nothing wrong with Ishbosheth. He was a decent man. What right did these friends of his have to just murder him in cold blood? They swallowed hard. They were sorry. This was all a misunderstanding. Yes, David agreed. They'd misunderstood that he would reward them both for their murder. But shouldn't they have known he wasn't like that? They had heard the stories, where he had spared King Saul in the wilderness despite having the king completely under his power. What in the world had made them think that he wouldn't kill the both of them? And that's what he did. He had Joab, who love killing, take the two of them out back and execute them. But just like Joab's murder of Abner turned out to be the best for David, so did these two men's murder of Ishbosheth. The war stopped almost immediately. Nobody was really in earnest about Ishbosheth's side anymore. It seemed doomed to fail. More and more, the former national hero, the man who showed so much love even for his enemies, David, seemed like the proper choice for a national king. The leaders of the various tribes went down to Hebron, 
David's capital. They gave him homage and declared him to be king of their tribe as well. Before the week was out, David was king over all Israel. Despite the time he had spent becoming the national hero, then later wandering in the wilderness, hiding from Saul and fighting Ishbosheth, David was only 30 years old when he was crowned. He was young, his whole life was ahead of him, and the kingdom was full of promise and hope. His next order of business was to find a new capital city. Hebron was nice, but it was small. David had had his eyes on Jerusalem for quite some time, but it was occupied by his enemies and one of the most well-defended cities in the area. It was strong and nearly impossible to invade. David only had one advantage, the pride of the city's defenders. If we all just took a nap, the city's defenders had boasted in messages to David and left out only the blind and the lame people with swords, they could kick your... That's extreme. Can you back it up? Well, David decided to figure out and marched his armies to Jerusalem. There was only one way in, climbing up a narrow water shaft. Late that night, David offered a captainship to whoever would climb up the water shaft, presumably hoping that someone else besides Joab would do it and then they would replace his frenemy as captain. Unfortunately for David, it was Joab who managed to climb up the water shaft first, though we don't know whether any of the other men tried. Joab was known to kill a lot of people, including people who he thought were rivals. He later was replaced, but when his replacement was on his way to battle, he appeared, slaughtered his replacement, and took command again, leaving his replacement dying on the ground as the troops marched over his dead body. So Joab was crazy, and people didn't really want to rival him. So Joab may have been the only person to try. Regardless, he made up the water shaft and solidified his place as general. David's men ended up slaughtering the defenders of Jerusalem, opening the gates, and taking the city for themselves. In an amazing twist of hubris, David decided that because the men of Jerusalem had insulted David, saying that the blind and the lame could fight him off, he just wouldn't allow any blind or lame people inside the city. Wait, that's super ableist and you're just making this rule to be ironic? It's not like any of the people who made fun of you are even still alive. David nodded. This was for the irony. From this point on, things moved quickly. David's old friends, the Philistines, paid a visit for war, but he quickly drove them off and pitched battle. But David had to do one more task before his kingdom was secure. Years and years ago, the Ark of the Covenant, a chest that was a physical representation of God himself, containing the actual tablets of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod from episode 206, and some manna, had been lost in battle. Some rapist priests had brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle despite God's direct orders not to. The Hebrews' army had been weak, and with their arrogance and wrongdoings, they could not have God's protection. They had been slaughtered, and the Ark of God had been captured. God wasn't very happy with the Philistines either, so the Ark started bringing their people plagues. 
So the Philistines shipped the thing back to Israel, where it stayed in a small town for years, including for the entire reign of Saul. Later, it was moved to the house of an immigrant, which began receiving incredible blessings. David wanted to bring this ark back to Jerusalem, and he enlisted a group of priests to bring the ark to the city. He danced wildly before God, incredibly joyful that finally the symbol of God's presence was back where it belonged, in the capital of the kingdom. David wasn't wearing his royal robes, just a simple white tunic like everyone else would wear. He did not care what people thought, but twirled and whirled in joy and excitement. Watching from a window, Michal was infuriated and disgusted. That evening, while the festivities still continued but David had stepped away for a break, Michal stepped down and confronted David. How distinguished, she mocked. He was a king and he should be acting like one. But he wasn't. He was dressed like a filthy commoner, dancing like one of them too. She spat at him. He was acting like a vulgar fellow trying to woo some loose woman, loose concubine. David was furious. He was incredibly happy about all the things that God had done for him. He didn't care what she thought. He'd twirl and whirl and act even more undignified than he just had. To the, why did she call them loose concubines? To them, he would be held in high esteem. But he had no place for her elitist attitude here. David stepped aside and walked back to the celebration. God had done amazing things for him and he would celebrate. Even he was a bit embarrassed to dance in front of everyone, but God had saved his life. God had brought him home, and God had given him the kingdom, just like he had promised. He would gladly embarrass himself if in doing so, he could honor God. That's where we're going to end the story of David. He goes on to have a long reign full of war and peace, victories and mistakes, life and death. We'll get to a lot of these stories later. For now, we end where the kingdom has been established in David's hands. In this story, we deal with a lot of gray characters. David is merciful and honorable, embracing kindness even though his enemies aren't kind to him. But he forcibly takes his former wife back from her new husband without her consent. Joab is always by David's side, watching David's back and keeping him from stumbling on his own merciful nature. But he brutally kills person after person in pursuit of his own power. Ishbosheth was David's enemy, but he never was truly a bad man. He only wanted to carry on the legacy of his father and ended up just becoming a puppet of Abner. Michal was rude and an elitist, but she was a victim in that she had been forcibly uprooted from her own life for a man who didn't even care about her. The Bible is full of gray. As I've said time and time again, the Bible emphasizes the story that only God himself is pure, and he is the standard we are all are to work towards. But one of the most honorable things any of the characters do in this episode is David's dancing before God. He admits that he himself is embarrassed, but he rejects elitism and kingly power. David dances before God for all the great things God had done for him. If we look back on our lives, God has done great things for us. 
This is something that I struggle with. I look back on my life and see it as full of accomplishments that I have manufactured myself. So I point myself back to Deuteronomy 8 because thousands of years ago, people felt the same way. In that chapter, God warns us not to forget him when we are satisfied and happy. The Bible says, you might say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But who was it that gave us that power and strength? Wasn't it God who created us? The chapter ends with a chilling warning of what will happen if we forget God. As a last thought, how often do we fail to dance before God? How often do we fear to embarrass ourselves by giving glory to the God who has brought us to where we are in life? Who has given us our capabilities? How often do we fear to stand up and raise our hands in church, praising God, instead being the one who condemns other worshipers for their enthusiasm, thinking people go over the top in praising God? That's exactly what this story warns against. If we truly love God, we too will speak and dance before God, thanking Him for what He has done for us. If we don't thank Him, perhaps we've forgotten just how much we've been given. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be doing the stories of two proud kings who thought that they were all that and really got themselves embarrassed. And we'll learn about the merits of accepting and correcting your flaws rather than brazenly continuing in them. Thank you so much for listening. Please give a five-star review and ask your friends to give a listen. Seeing the listeners pop up on my app is what gives me the energy to make a new podcast episode. I am incredibly excited to produce more content for y'all to listen to. I hope y'all have an amazing weekend. Credits to myself for scripting and theme music. Many thanks to open source artists for creating the podcast music and to Evoke Music for the closing theme. I am super grateful to all of them.